Romans chapter 9. All right, just want to ask if uh, you ever felt there were a time in your life you might have been just a little bit overconfident, that you thought, you know, I got the skills, I got the resources, got the money, I got the charm, I can make this happen, only to find out that indeed you were a little bit overestimating your abilities. You ever had that experience? If you're human, you probably have, right? I've had it on multiple occasions. It's I was driving the uh, sixth grade boys to school this week and they were talking about what was taking place in their PE class and apparently there's a little boy, Isaac, and he was talking about how fast he was and he was telling this one kid, I'm even faster than you, which wasn't much of a brag, but uh, they were talking about these 40-yard dashes they were having and apparently what would happen is Isaac was really good for the first 15 yards and then he just stopped. He just stopped right there, you know, and so they were like, oh, he's really not that fast. And it kind of reminded me of... uh, when I got into high school, I went to a large high school, and I actually made the varsity uh, cross-country team, which was a big deal, and I was pretty excited about that, and think, I'm thinking, you know, my time has arrived. Now, I knew from my times that I wasn't expecting to, like, win the race or anything like that, um, but I thought, you know, there's only 21 runners there. I, what I was not anticipating is what happened. Um, I ended up coming in dead last. And it's still bothering me even to this day. And so I find myself having to talk about it in public places. And it's cathartic and I'm doing everything I can to overcome some of these issues. I just never thought I'd end up 21st. Come on, man. It happened to me. And I'm still working through those issues. But you see that in athletics, don't you? Like in the preseason, right? In the preseason, like every team is awesome. They're all singing the Lego song, right? Everything is awesome, right? Because they haven't played anybody yet. So of course they think they're awesome and we're going to dominate this year. You see that until they actually have their first couple games like, ah, I guess we're not so good as it after all, right? You start, reality starts setting in. I'm sure this happened to you in school, right? Yeah, um, uh, you told your folks you are ready for the test, right? And you kind of thought you were because you didn't sleep in class. You even took some notes. They, you did the review. You did fine on the quiz. But uh, lo and behold, the test came up. And you're like, what in the world are you talking about, right? And you go into a mild panic, right? And you've had those experiences. You really weren't prepared. This happens in people's finances. People think like, yeah, i got a good handle on my money. I, I mean, the bank doesn't call me like every month. Uh, I... You know, I'm generally able to make my credit card payment. And what happens is someday reality is going to set in. Your short-term outlook on your finances is going to have some long-term implications. You're like, oh, because you aren't actually as prepared as you might have thought you would be. In fact, you're going to find that your compound interest is going to be a compound problem in your life. And this idea of false estimation or overconfidence it's somewhat of a predominant theme in humanity and guess what it even shows up in Christianity among Christians so if I were to ask you like hey tell me a little bit how tell me about your spiritual maturity how mature you are in Christ and you know and I could just see it oh you know I would consider myself a fairly mature Christian. You know, I've got 13 Bibles. Six of them are designer Bibles. They match my outfits, you know. And I've, got, I've been baptized. I profess faith in Christ. I've been to more church services than there are stars in the sky. I've been to multiple Bible studies. And basically what you're saying is you equate activity with maturity. But are you really mature? In fact, how is it that you could actually assess if you really have maturity in Christ? Are there any indicators to health? Are there indicators that your relationship with God and his word are actually bringing about the result of maturity in Christ? Well, it's a good thing you're here today because when you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, 
you actually are going to see some indicators that are laid out. Now, let's just going to review where we've been. We've been actually marching our way through the book of Romans. We have had eight chapters of Christ-centered theology, and before we look at what does a Christ-centered life look like in, re- in regards to that theology, let's kind of review where we've been. The theme of the book of Romans is this. It is the transforming power of trusting in Christ and his gospel. That is the theme. In fact, if you can remember six words, you can pretty much outline this book. And that would be pretty cool that you could outline the book of Romans. And so the first word is exaltation. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, it talks about the glory of Christ and his gospel, how awesome he is and how awesome the gospel is. But that is followed by the bad news, condemnation, the need for Christ and his gospel because all have sinned. And so chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way through 320, you see that all of us, it doesn't matter where you came from, your background, nationality, genealogy, we are all under sin. We are sinners by nature. We can't help ourselves. Well, then, the best news that humanity has ever heard is found beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 5, and that is justification. It is the gift of God's righteousness through the gospel that God literally declares anyone who believes in Christ to be righteous. In fact, what's happened is the righteousness of Christ, his righteous life, his death, his resurrection, is actually the righteousness accomplished by Christ is put on your account. Your sin is dealt with through his life, specifically when he is crucified, And God's just wrath has been expressed and experienced by Christ so that you who believe in Christ never face it. It will lead to eternal worship. That is justification. And the outflow of a person made right with God is sanctification, what we've been looking at in chapter 6, 7, and 8. And that looks at the reality of being set apart to Christ and his gospel. What does it look like to grow in this relationship with Christ? Literally, to be filled with his spirit, What does that look like? And we've been spending quite a bit of time looking at that, which leads us to the section we're at today. Restoration, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Israel's future reception of God's gospel. And that will be followed as this book is concluded in Romans chapter 12 through 16, transformation, the developing lifestyle that comes from knowing God and his gospel. God fully intends that his people will look a lot like Christ. And that's what's discussed there. You know, you need to know this. What we learn about God is to develop how we live and how we love. And what is the most effective way to lead something? What if, if you're a leader, and if you're a parent, school teacher, involved in any sort of ministry, you have any influence at your place of work, you're a leader, what is the most effective way to lead? You might want to know the answer to this because people are desperately looking for it. It is to model it. It is one thing to say it. It's one thing to hand out a paper on it. It's a whole other way to live it. And that's what you find when you come to Romans chapter 9. In verses 1 through 5, Paul is modeling what does good theology look like in your life? What, is it, what does it look like? And he's just very transparent. You've got 1 through 8. You're not going to do better in terms of theology than that. What does that look like in a human life? Well, let me give you three indicators that the theology of God's word is taking root in your life. And the first one is, is that you're going to have a compassion for the lost. Look at this, chapter 9, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. I'm not saying any of these things for expediency. In fact, I would never lie. In fact, to reinforce that, he says, my conscience 
testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. What is a person's conscience? It is your warning mechanism that tells you that you are breaking or violating your known understanding of morality, right and wrong. And everybody has a conscience. When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life, and now you're starting to be informed by the Word of God. And what happens is a believer's conscience is actually shaped then to the morality given by God in his word. And he's saying, I'm not lying. I am, my conscience will even testify for me in the Holy Spirit. It is spirit-led and induced. I am not lying, but I want you to know my heart is crushed. In fact, I'm willing to give my heart. For look at what he says in verse 2. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I am completely heartbroken. I, uh, there's something that is literally tearing me up. Well, what might that be? Well, look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Oh, wait a second here. What's going on? He said, I wish that I myself were accursed, literally Greek, anathema, has the idea that you have been set apart for destruction. What is he saying? He's saying, I have such a great love for my people, the people of Israel, my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, that I wish that I could be separated from Christ so that they might experience the realities of the gospel, the joy of knowing Christ, his presence, his well-being, the eternal benefits that come from trusting in Christ. Now, he knows that it is impossible. Because remember what he said in Romans chapter 8, I mean, he just got done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say that nothing could separate us from the love of Christ, and that salvation is all of God's doing and not our own. And he's saying, I know that, but I want you to know my heart. I wish that I could be separated so that they might experience the joy of knowing Christ. When you come to know Christ for who he really is, you want everyone to know him. It's not like, well, that's just your religion of choice. It's a nice little option that you're following. seems to be working for you. No. When you know Christ, you want everyone to know him. And he's, he's really, he's kind of reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets. If you want to understand a little bit more about the Old Testament prophets, you need to understand that they had a overwhelming heart for God that got translated into a heart for their people. Why do you think they would go and preach difficult messages and take beatings and get locked up and throw into caves and cisterns? Because they loved their people. And you see that because you always see that when God's word takes root in your heart, just like you see here with Paul. You know, what is the highest form of human love? That you're willing to lay down your life for another, right? That's what Jesus did, right? We know that he loves us. Why? Because he laid down his life for the brethren. He laid down his life for his people. Now, well, that's because we're just such a lovable group of folks, right? We're so kind, fuzzy, warm. He's just like, oh, I just want cute little people like you in my kingdom. Is that it? No, I don't think so. Uh, let me just remind you that we were his enemies. And Christ died for us. In fact, he demonstrates his love for us even while we're his enemies. He died for us. This is uh, similar to like Moses. Remember Moses, great leader of the people? Remember God brings his people out of Egypt? They have that Red Sea deal. That should have been pretty convincing, man, that our God is awesome. He leads them through the 
the, to the promised land. You got 40 years. And remember they had the incident with the golden calf? Not a stellar moment in their past. Do you remember how Moses responded? In Exodus chapter 32, he literally prays and says, God, forgive the sin of your people. And if not, I want you to blot my name out of your book. Literally, take me out. Why is he saying that? Because he had developed such a love for his people. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about Paul. Paul was what nationality? Jewish, right? And, you know, he was a great persecutor of the church. He hated Jesus, the Messiah, didn't like that. No, 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 no. Hated Christians. Actually, he led persecutions against Christians. In fact, he had been sent by Jewish leadership to go and do just that in Damascus, but then he had a real-time Real conversion because he came face to face with the reality of the risen, resurrected Lord. And he went from Christ-hater to Christ-lover. And how do you think the Jewish people responded to that? They go, well, you know what? You're a respected God. Boy, you may be onto something. Let's understand this better here. Did th- is that how that went? No. They hated him. And he became on their list of the top people we'd like to see dead. In fact, The Jewish people, pretty much for the story for them, they beat him, threw rocks at him, they hated him, they wanted him dead, and they made his life miserable. That's his people. And yet, how did Paul respond to that? Well, let me ask you, how do you respond to the people that don't treat you very nicely? Just stop. How are you doing with that? Think of some people like in your family, maybe at school, at the job, that don't treat you kindly or nice. Are you just gushing with love for them? You're always praying for them? You're bending over backwards to try to help them? Is that what's going on? Or No, obviously not. We've got some people looking down. Okay, because why? You hurt me. We're either going to fight or we're going to get self-protective, right? But when God's word starts taking root in your life, you start developing a compassion for the lost. There is a reason why they behave the way they behave. They don't know Christ and they don't have genuine, authentic spiritual life. And so when you see Paul here, and he's just pouring out his heart, this isn't the speech of logic. When you talk about love, this is the language and the speech of the heart. He knows he can't be separated from God. He absolutely understands that completely. But he's expressing his heart, man, I, I love these people. Let me tell you something. Great privilege does not necessarily equate to personal relationship with Christ. Just because you got a lot of blessing, you got great privilege... Don't mistake that like automatically. Got it. Into the kingdom. Salvation is mine. If anybody should believe, it would have been the Jewish people. And beginning in verse 4, you have like systematically, he's going to start listing out nine privileges that the people of God, the people of Israel had. Look at verse 4. He says, who are the Israelites? You've got to stop right there. This is the first time now he starts referring to them as Israelites. Before, they'd been Jews. Okay? When you use Israelites, that came from the descendants of Abraham through Jacob. Remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And they were known as the people of Israel. In fact, when, when you see in the scripture they're referred to as the Israelites, it's actually refer, deriving the idea that there is a theological connotation, that these are God's people. They have a favored status in God's eyes. To refer to them as Jews was, comes out of the origins of Judah, the southern kingdom, and that was used from like the territory or politically or nationally. They are the Jews. But to speak of them as the Israelites spoke of that these are 
God's people. And notice what else he says, and that they are adopted. To whom belongs the, verse 4, the adoption. God is the one who literally adopted them. That doesn't mean that every single person receives salvation, but as a people group, he adopted them. He gave them a special calling, covenants, blessing, and you know what their purpose was, don't you? What was the purpose for the people of Israel? Why adopt them? So that they would be an example and a witness to all the nations of the world. He picked the weakest group. I'm going to take this small group of people. If it wasn't me, you would be obliterated. And I'm going to show the world my power. I'm going to bless you beyond measure. They were adopted. Notice that he said, the adoptions of sons. That was a massive privilege. And notice what else he says. And, for, and the glory. We're, the glory speaks of God's Shekinah or the glory cloud that symbolizes God's presence in guiding them and protecting them. And you remember, when, you get, when they're going through and going to the promised land, they took the long route. They, you know how they were led, that 40-year journey? There was a cloud and a pillar of fire by night. It was God's presence. His glory. They knew when to move on to the next KOA when the cloud moved and they followed and God was training them, you go when I tell you to go. You learn to follow me. And then not only that, but then you actually had the establishment of the tent of meeting and God's presence was there. And that was followed by when Solomon developed the, and built the temple. And in the holy of holies, between the two cherubim, between their wings, as the light would flow through their wings, was the very presence of God himself, manifested to who? To his people. What an amazing privilege. They had the glory of God. And furthermore, he says, not only that, they had, and the, verse 4, and the covenants. God actually entered into covenant relationship with his people. Remember, he did so with Abraham, who was the physical father of all the Jewish people, and he is the spiritual father of all who believe. If you are a true Christian, do you know that you are a descendant by faith of Abraham? Because remember, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was justified. You and I, we believe in God, we believe in Christ. You can trace your spiritual lineage to Abraham. And not only Abraham, but then there was also to Moses. Remember at Mount Sinai, God gave the Mosaic covenant. And he gave them the laws. Listen, you follow this, you will be greatly blessed. You want to disregard me? Disregard what I have to say? There will be consequences because you're my people. I happen to love you. And there was also then the covenant that God made with David. Remember? He told David, listen, I am going to, from your house, from your lineage, will come Messiah. You will have a son who will be a king and he will reign eternally forever. That was, that was a covenant that God established with who? The people of Israel. And then the most, the greatest of the covenants was the new covenant. Remember spoken of in Jeremiah 31 where God literally said, I'm going to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will literally transform you and I will write my laws in your heart. It will be an internal transformation. This is my covenant to you. Wow. Who had all these covenants? And all there were six biblical covenants that God gave. That was all, by the way, to the people of Israel. And notice what else he says. Not only the covenants, but verse 4, and the giving of the law. God gave them the law that basically governed their social, political, and religious life. Showed them, this is how you live. And not only speaks of the fact that he guided them in the, all of these pursuits and how they should live, but when he speaks of the gave the law, where did God's word, Scripture, 
to what people group did God actually provide that to? Do you know? It was the Jewish people, the people of Israel. They're the ones that received it and preserved it. And they went through great pains. What people group of all the people? The people of Israel. But let's keep going. And the temple service. The entire sacrificial and ceremonial system. The way that God would truly be worshipped. The one true God. How to deal with sin. What repentance looks like. Sacrifices. Offerings. Cleansing. Where was that all established? That was all given to us. The people of Israel. By God And furthermore, he says, and one more thing he says in verse 4, and the promises. The promise of a Messiah. That one will come that literally will bear our sins in his body. One who will be sacrificed on our behalf. The promise of eternal life, eternally living and knowing the joy and the fullness of life in this life and the life to come and an eternal kingdom. Who received all these promises? People of Israel. And look at it, it keeps going. He gives a seventh one, verse 5. Whose are the fathers? Speaking of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the 12 tribes of Israel all came from the, the fathers. Well, that's, they're all actually Israelites. From whom, and look at this, from whom is the Christ, Christos, Hebrew, Messiah, from whom is the Messiah according to the flesh, who is overall God, blessed forever. Amen. God has provided salvation, the Messiah. The word Christ, Christos, Messiah, means anointed one. The one anointed to provide the way of salvation, true authentic life with God. Who received this? The people of Israel. In fact, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of David. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises and the covenants that finds its fulfillment in Christ. So you think with all these privileges, man, the Jews should have just been, ha, absolutely. You are the Messiah. You're the fulfillment of all that's been promised to us and given to us. But how did the people of Israel respond to Jesus? They rejected him. You know who knew this real well? A guy by the name of Paul. Israel rejected him. They absolutely did not want this Jesus to be their Messiah. So much so, they had several times tried to put him to death. And when that was not working for them, then they had these little mock trials. And they tried to get it done early in the morning to hand him off over to a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate to get this Jesus off their back and to get him crucified. And they put a lot of pressure on Pontius Pilate and said, listen, this guy's an insurrectionist. He's trying to lead a rebellion. You ought to do something about that, right? So why don't you kill him? Pontius Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with him, but hey, you know what? He didn't want to face this kind of heat, and he wanted to be a friend of Caesar's. And so the Jews were effective in putting Christ to death, and the Romans were happy to oblige. And Paul understood all about what rejection of Christ looked like, because that had been his life. But yet he'd been changed because of the presence of Christ and God's word taking root in his life. You know why this is written, don't you? It's written so that you and I will take a close look at Paul's heart so we can take a closer look at our heart. You will find that when God's word and the gospel really starts taking root in your life, when you're really starting to grow, that you start developing a compassion for the lost. Now, you may find that some of the hardest people to love are people in your own family or at work 
or in your community, or even in your country. There are people that are literally flying the colors that say, my life desperately needs Jesus. I was at a football game, and I was talking with a buddy of mine, a fellow believer, and this, this one guy, it's very apparent by his behavior, he desperately needs Christ. I'd like to get to talk with him further. But you know that. In fact, by the way, that's what your life looked like before you found or Christ found you. You see, just because you've received great light, all that re- re- basically gets translated to is greater accountability. You know, there's some of you that have, you are blessed beyond measure. You've received so many opportunities. And yet, if you're stiff-arming God, you've you got all these excuses why you're rebelling, but yet you have been blessed beyond measure. You've heard the gospel. You've seen it lived out, maybe by a brother or sister or your parent, and yet you're just like, I'm too cool for that. I'm doing my own thing. You need to know that just leads to greater accountability. And there's a huge difference between Christians and Jewish people. Did you know that? It seems like, you know, you listen to the news, you read stuff, and it's all about the Judeo-Christian values. Judeo-Christian. Maybe some of you get little emails on that. It's like all tied together. We're all one in this well, there's a lot of things that we share in common, but there is a huge difference. Do you happen to know what that is? Do you? Yeah, the difference is, what have you done with Jesus? Have you trusted him as the Lord and Messiah, or are you still moving on? A Christian is one who's embraced him. Whether you come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, you have believed and trusting in Jesus. There's a magazine, a Jewish magazine, called Moment. In the March-April edition 2012, they asked a number of Jewish writers, professors, rabbis, artists, and actors, because after all, actors form and shape public opinion, the following question. This question that they asked. What does the concept of the Messiah mean today? Good question. So what did all these Jewish actors and artists and writers and professors say? Let me give you a few examples. Rabbi Peter H. Schweitzer. Quote, Years ago, a popular evangelical bumper sticker read, I found it. The Jewish version would read, I'm still looking for it. Harris Lenowitz, literature professor, who at different times in their life hasn't had a belief that someone, a Messiah, can help them and help the world. And a Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question, does God care for me? That is really good, very insightful. Does God care for me? Here's another one. Ruth Messenger, CEO of Jewish World Service. The Messiah doesn't connote that some entity, deity, or event will suddenly arrive and change the circumstances in our lives. That's a notion of childhood wish fulfillment. You see, if you catch on, what's happened is, for the most part, most Jewish people are not looking for the Messiah, or they have completely redefined what Messiah even means. And this example from Dr. Messenger is one of those. Here's another one. Mayim Balik, neuroscientist and actress. Now, that's an interesting combination. She's got them both going there. They, she says this, the concept of Messiah is a general notion that we are partners in making the world better, in moving the world forward. The Messiah is progress, participation, suiting up, and showing up for life. That's what Messiah is. Really. And then a final one, Samuel Heilman, sociology professor. For most Jews, the messianic idea has receded. It's not on the top of the agenda, and they don't see history as inexorably moving to that day. You see, 
For the most part, the Jewish people, they've given up on the whole idea of Messiah, or they've redefined it, or they say that, well, we as a people are the Messiah. And there's a lot of people that are rejecting the Messiah, Jesus, Jews and Gentiles alike, for a plethora of reasons. But you need to know this, that when God's word is taking root in your life, you start living differently. You start having a compassion for the lost. What made Paul such an effective instrument in God's hand? Would you like to know that? It was that he had a compelling love for his own people. The people that actually hated him, made his life miserable, he loved them and he desperately wanted them to know the joy of living for the Savior. Now, evangelism is going to have little effect if the evangelist has little love. You know that? By the way, people can tell if you see them as a project or if this is a passion in your life. If you kind of got this idea like, oh, I've got these 10 people, I'm on the prayer list, and I'm going to make sure they get saved, all right? And you do something a little bit short of a crusade, and you pin them against the wall, you feel like they have no option but to believe in Jesus, and you think you're, you're doing a great job and a great service for the kingdom. No, that actually gives Christianity a bad name. Has in the past, does in the present. No. But what people do sense is when you really love them, you got a genuine love for God and you got a genuine love for them. People are looking for that kind of authenticity. That's what Paul has here. In fact, if you look at the forwarding of the gospel, it's generally God uses people that have just a deep love for him and a deep love for people. Look at a guy like make a, by the name of John Knox, 16th century Reformed Protestant pastor. And he said this, Give me Scotland or I die. Whoa, that's passion, isn't it? Or let me give another. Henry Martin, early 19th century Anglican missionary to the people of India and to Persia. And this is what he wrote. Oh, that I were a flame of fire in the hand of God. I just want to be a flame of fire in the hand of God. By the way, he died at age 31 as a missionary. Or another, David Brainerd, American missionary to the Native Americans about the time of Jonathan Edwards. Actually married one of his daughters. And he, he pleaded with God that he might burn out for God because he had such a compelling love for the Indian people. And it, don't get the idea that they were just coming to Christ in droves. No. It was one bad meeting after another. In fact, he even died at age 30, for the most part, because he put himself in such difficult situations because he had such a compelling love. You see, what we learn about God is to develop how we live and how we love. And a healthy love for God and his word will lead to a compelling love for people. So if you want to have an indicator if theology, God's theology is having root in your life, look at this indicator. Do you have a compassion for the lost? Let me give you another one. You found it in verse 5. But you also have a confidence in Christ. Look what he says. When he talks about Christ, he says, according to the flesh who is overall God-blessed forever. He's according to the flesh. God literally entered into humanity in the person of Jesus. He was born. He had all of the issues of humanity in a body that just, like, he's captured in it, this eternal Son of God. And yet he is the eternal Son of God. He has no beginning. He is fully man. He's fully God. But Paul says, despite all the difficulties, the fact that all the Jewish people have all these amazing privileges and they still reject him, and they reject me, and it looks like this is going nowhere in the Roman Empire, 
I have great confidence that God is in control. And that's why he says, who is over all. Over all this? Over all this mess? Over all these problems? There is still Christ. He is God-blessed forever. And that's my confidence. And it's really interesting. You look at Matthew. He traces the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph's life. Luke takes the genealogy, traces it, and Mary all the way to a place where you both have it all coming into the person of Jesus, who is the promised Messiah. And friends, that's where you and I are going to make it through our difficulties, challenges, and trials. It's by having a confidence in Christ, not your circumstances. Not that it's going well, or people even receiving you well. Because frankly, it isn't always great. Life is painful and it is hard. You're going to face difficulties. There's going to be times you're not sure how it's going to work out. Your face is going to be next to a brick wall and you're not going to see how it's going to work out. That's all right. Just remember that he is God over all. And that gives you a confidence to move forward. Because after all, we live, move, and walk by faith. We're just trusting him. Even when it looks bad. Yet, let me assure you, it's getting heated up in our country. We've been tolerated as Christians. That's going to change probably in our lifetime. But let's maintain our confidence in Christ and move forward with the gospel, loving people, not receding and hiding someplace. And let me give you just one other indicator that God's word has taken root in your life, that you're truly healthy and developing maturity in Christ. And it's found by taking a step back from this text. Just look at the passage. Look at the book as a whole. Look at Paul's life. Another indicator that God's word is really taking root in your life is that you have a compulsion to serve. Look at Paul. What is he doing in light of the scripture God is giving? Well, he's writing this letter. Did you know that under the inspiration of the Spirit, he is actually writing this letter? Not only this letter, he wrote multiple letters. He is also preaching the gospel. He's literally going from community to community, preaching the gospel, and generally getting beaten back, having the dog sicked on him. But he keeps going after it. Why? Because he has a compulsion to serve. Because God's word is so real to him. Because Christ is so real to him. He's preaching the gospel. He's teaching and encouraging the saints. Even when he feels depressed and discouraged. If you have any question on that, just read the book of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1, he says, man, I'm despairing even a wife. Chapter 7, he says, man, God who comforts the depressed. That's me. Guess what? But he's still in there. He's got a confidence in Christ. He's still serving. He's, he's hanging in there through the difficulties. He's making disciples. He is making the personal investment to help someone bring, come to places of maturity in their life. And he is developing leaders all in the midst of a lot of pretty bad, difficult circumstances that he could justifiably say, I'm going to take a pass. But no, he's not. There's maturity. It goes down to this, friends. We live what we believe. What you believe comes out your life. Your life reflects your theology. Good, bad, or indifferent. And that has always been the case. And that's why at Fellowship, that's our vision. Our vision is four words. It had to be so simple that I could remember it, Okay? And so it's four words, growing deep, reaching out. I, look at that. I got it. Do you got it? Growing deep, reaching out. I got a couple trees in my front yard. Looks like that tree. And like these oak trees, as those roots sink deep into the ground, getting nutrients and water, what happens is a residual effect that the tree branched out and is bearing all sorts of fruit. My kids climb in it. They, 
That's what it looks like in life. When you come to Christ, you go from a sapling, you start sinking deep roots and knowing God and His Word. God starts shaping your character, your convictions and your conduct start looking differently because of your relationship with Christ and as you relate to God's Word. And you actually start branching out. It shows up in your relationships and how you treat your spouse, your family, your parents. It shows up with how you treat your coworkers, folks at church, people in the community. It shows up even how you treat your quote-unquote enemies. Because Christ is alive in your life. And it even then shows up also in your ministry, which in a large part is your career, what you're doing with your time, whether you're a student, whether you've got some place on the workforce, and whether it be a, your ministry in the community or your ministry in our church, it shows up. That's what maturity looks like. You have a compulsion to serve. Because a healthy love for God and his truth develops a compelling love for people and his service. It's really that simple. I hope you're not just kind of coming to church. Like, I'm just going to a church service. Just can't wait to be over. That would be sorry. I hope you come so that God's word can seep deeply into your heart, a receptive heart, a heart that wants to know, a heart that's growing in a love for Christ, and you're going to flourish and grow, and that's what it looks like. I think many of you have heard of West Point Academy. Uh, started actually 1802. President Thomas Jefferson signed the legislation to establish the U.S. Military Academy. And what it was is an institution devoted to the arts of the sciences of warfare. And that, what it did is put America in a position where we're no longer relying in wartime on foreign engineers and artillerists, okay? Now we can start developing our own. In fact, it became the first engineering school in America, and it became the pattern for which other engineering schools were developed. At West Point, they have this little slogan, that's a good one. Much of the history we teach was made by the people we taught. Ooh, isn't that good? Much of the history we teach was made by the people we taught. And if you look at West Point, I mean, they have developed tons of leaders. Now, they have a cemetery there at West Point. And there actually are two civilians that are actually married there. And they're actually, they're ladies. Two ladies, two little old ladies, they're never married. They're buried at the cemetery there at West Point, and their story is fascinating. In 1834, the Warner family, whom Susan and Anna Warner belonged, bought Constitution Island right there in the Hudson River, right next to the military academy there at West Point, and they bought it as a vacation home. But times got tough and rough. And even though their, their uncle Thomas had convinced them, this is what you want to do. You want to buy Constitution Island, have your nice little summer home. He himself was a chaplain and a professor at uh, West Point there. Well, all of a sudden, things got really tough. In fact, their situation was so reduced that they ended up having to live permanently on this little island in this house. And so they were uh, forced to basically take on genteel poverty. These two women spent their entire life for the most part, on that island. This is where they lived. This was their home. They never married. They had to make a living. So they began to write novels. Susan's first book, The Wide, Wide World, in its day, was the second most popular novel, only behind Uncle Tom's Cabin. And they were able to generate an income, not to be wealthy or anything, but enough to survive. And Anna also wrote her, mo her most successful book was Dollars and Cents, which talked about their family's difficulties and all that they faced. Now, they all, not only could write good books, but they also had a profound faith in Christ. You don't, you don't have their books. You haven't read them. But these women have left their fingerprints on our society. 
For decades, the sisters' primary ministry was a Sunday school class that they ran at their home. They ran it for all of the soldiers, all of the officers that went to West Point, who would, on every Sunday afternoon, row across the Hudson River to come to their island, to their house, where they actually gave them cookies and lemonade that goes a long ways, and they actually taught them the Bible. And this became a consuming passion in their life. They would teach them every Sunday afternoon, whether they had to row across or walk across the ice. They were always teaching them. And, they, and Anna, every month, would write a new hymn for all of those West Point cadets that were coming to study under them. And, and one of these hymns actually became pretty famous. I think you actually know one of them. I want you to put yourself in their situation. Put yourself as one of the cadets who had crossed over the Hudson and was on the island. And listening to the words as these two women taught you, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin, let his little child come in. Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. Thou hast bled and died for me. I will henceforth live for thee. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so. After Susan died in 1885, Anna wrote that this Sunday school class became her one thought in life. And she continued to run this class all the way till her death in 1915. In 1915, West Point Academy refers to this year as the year that the class of the, the class of the stars fell on. For they had such great leaders in that particular class, even its most stellar example, a guy by the name of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was one of Anna's pupils in her Sunday school class, who later became a U.S. president. Those are the only two civilians that are, that are buried in that cemetery and they received the signal honor because they were the Sunday school teacher for the cadets at West Point. So I'm asking you, what is going to be your legacy? What are you going to leave? To what degree has God's word really taken root in your life? Is it flourishing and manifesting itself in a compassion for the lost, a confidence in Christ, and a compulsion to serve? Because, after all, friends, we live what we believe, don't we? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. And, Father, for my friends who have come here today who have never trusted Christ, would now they just say, God, you've got my full attention. And I turn from self and my sin, and I trust Jesus as my Savior. And for all of us, Lord, would you have us continue to grow and to flourish, become all that you've intended us to be through the working of your Spirit, because you have given us Christ and your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.